to the Tennis IQ Podcast. I'm Josh Berger. And I'm Brian Lomax. And today, Josh and I are going to talk about positive psychology and some interventions that we can use from the world of positive psychology to help improve our tennis performance. I think it might be useful first, Josh, to talk about what positive psychology actually is. Um, to me, it's a fascinating branch of, of psychology. It's something I was introduced to, I want to say, in, in 2010. And basically, what positive psychology is trying to do is recognizing that since the end of World War II, the majority of focus in the, in the psychology world has been more on things like mental illness, syndromes, depression. Um, and that was a reaction essentially to soldiers coming home from World War II and the real need to, to treat those, uh, those people as they came back from war and, and to help them deal with that. And so then the whole industry was built around that. Prior to World War II, the psychology industry was actually a little bit more on the positive side, helping people flourish and, and so forth. And so the idea of positive psychology is not just to be positive or just to be happy, but I, there's one um, helpful example that I, uh, I like to use. I got it from Tal Ben-Shahar, who used to teach positive psychology at Harvard. It was the most popular course at Harvard when he was there. And he uses this scale of negative five to positive five. And he says, you know, that traditional psychology was often to help people just get back to normal, to get back to health, back to neutral. So it, it helped them get, say, from somewhere in the negative range back to zero. But we didn't have anything in the psychology world that was going to help people get from zero to five, really to make them psychologically stronger. And as we know from the physical world, when people become physically stronger, physically healthier, they ward off disease more. We weren't doing that on the psychology side. So the idea is, can we help people be psychologically stronger to be, you know, have more what we call subjective well-being? So that mental illness and different syndromes and depression, um, you're not going to be as likely to experience those things. So uh, I just found it a really fascinating look at life, right, to, to try to help people. Um, yeah, being happier is certainly a pot, part of it, but also to live a more meaningful and fulfilling life. Um, so it just appealed to my personality when I was first introduced to it. Yeah, no, I, I think and, and uh, I think our listeners will definitely appreciate that that background into into positive psychology. Um, but no, I, I would say it's, it's definitely um, aligned with my my values and my way of seeing the world as, as well. Not constantly looking for deficits or what's wrong, um, but trying to look at strengths and trying to um, help to build some positive emotions and try to find a system of well-being and of flourishing rather than constantly you know, working on things that are wrong or deficits, but trying to think of, okay, how can, how can we flourish more? How can we, um, how, how can somebody benefit? Um, even if, and we'll talk about this, even if something already is a strength or somebody already is strong at something um, or has certain positive things that they're already doing, how can we build on that? So no, I, I think, I think that was a, a definitely a, a great background for everybody. Yeah, and I think you you use some good words there, Josh. You know, thinking of it more as a health model rather than an illness model. Mm -hmm. Right. So how do we promote more health um, rather than just treating illnesses? Right. So one thing that 
we wanted to get into today with respect to positive psychology and how we can apply it to tennis is that with positive emotions and uh, you know specifically incorporating more positive emotions into what we do now we all know that each of us is different we're all individuals we may use different emotions to uh, achieve our best performances but we also know from research that bringing more positive emotions can help us be more creative, broaden our, our thinking. And so there's a theory called broaden and build theory it's, um, by Dr. Barbara Fredrickson and talks about how when we experience more positive emotions, whether that's in life or even in a context like sport, we tend to be more creative. We tend to broaden our thinking, see more options for what we have to do. As opposed to when we're experiencing negative emotions, so if everybody were to think about when you're maybe anxious or frustrated or angry on the tennis court, there are probably not very many options running through your mind. Uh, if we think about anxiety and nerves, what's running through our mind? Like, don't do this. Don't do that. Don't screw up. Don't miss. And those are not really options. They're just you know inserting negative outcomes into your brain. So the more that we can bring positive emotions in there, um, we, we become more creative, we give ourselves more options, but we also build our psychological resources. Um, so we can become more resilient in this way by using positive emotions. We can handle adversity better in that way. Um, and then, all right, so what's the right ratio? So in Fredrickson's research, he talks about a minimum ratio for people who are you know, flourishing are successful as three positive emotions to one negative. Now, it's key to understand that it's not zero negative. We are not looking to eliminate the the negative thoughts. These are things that keep us realistic. Um, but, you know, negativity is not necessarily re realism and positivity is not necessarily realism. It's a blend of those things, right? So, so three to one is the minimum. So I think for us tennis players, we want to be successful on the court, we probably need a higher ratio, perhaps five to one or maybe up to eight to one. We don't want to go too high because then we start to enter sort of a dream world, become a Pollyanna, and a bit of la-la land. Uh, anything really over 11 to one, we're not really based in reality anymore. But if you think about even uh, you know great performers, what is the use of negative emotions in a really difficult match, say it's like four all in the second set, you maybe won or even lost the first set. It's obviously very close. If you're thinking negatively, you know, what are, what are the benefits of that? So I think want to try to have more positive emotions there. So when you think of this, Josh, what are some of the positive emotions that you recommend people start to work into their performances or even into their training or even outside of that stuff to perhaps drive that ratio higher and higher for themselves? Yeah, I think there's a, a, a number of different areas. I mean, I think um, as it relates to training, um, so uh, I, I think gratitude is, is definitely a big one. Um, I think being grateful for actually being able to train, um, you know, having coaching, having access to courts. I think we've seen particularly, you know, over the last 12 months or so, with the pandemic, a number of people, you know, haven't been able to train with courts being closed down or clubs closing down um, or access to tournaments being limited. So I think gratitude is, is definitely a place where I'd start where 
being grateful for having the ability to train or ability to play matches or to receive coaching or to have, um, you know, quality training partners or whatever it may be. So I, I would say gratitude is, is definitely um, a big one as it relates to training. Um, but I think as, as players are competing as well, I think there's, there's a number, a number of positive emotions. I think, um, you know, compassion for the people around you, whether that be doubles partners, whether that be um, some sort of umpire, um, your opponent as well. Um, and then I think also just um, being able to stay positive or neutral, regardless of what happens um, after a point is also a big one um, where even if you lost the point, which as we've talked about in previous episodes will happen right around half of the time in, in, in a match, um, maybe a little more, maybe a little bit less being able to not, you know, experience or show that negativity, but being able to neutrally, you know, see things as they are, or maybe you lose a point and you compliment your opponent's shot or you, you know, some sort of a shadow swing or, um, being able to reinforce something neutral or something um, positive, like you know, pumping yourself up and using some sort of physical intensity in that in that sort of moment. Um, but to, to go back to your question, I mean, I think there's a number of different areas, um, both in the training court and um, and in, on the match court, where you can see those um, positive emotions manifest themselves. And I, I to what you're saying about the ratio. I think that that's a very important point that, hey, these negative emotions will come out at times. If, it, if it's for all or, you know, if it's, if it's an intense moment in a match and you lose a point that it is, you know, it, it is normal to experience some sort of frustration or some sort of um, disappointment even with the result of a point or just um, the result of where you're at at that particular point in a match. But if that's constantly where you are for, point after point or game after game, and that's going to harm your performance where if you can get back into a, um, a better frame of mind where, you know, most of the time that, um, you know, at much higher ratio of the time you're, you're in a positive frame of mind and you're pumping yourself up. Maybe it's a fist pump after you win a point or it's, um, going through your routine and trying to pump yourself up for the next point. Um, even if you lost the point, you know, you're, you're doing that, the vast majority of the time with, with a better ratio. And that's ultimately what's going to um, set, set you up for the best, the best possible uh, performance. But I mean, I, I think, you know, as it, when players are training, I think it's important to try to be aware, aware of your emotions and aware of your self-talk and the way that you're communicating to uh, with yourself and communicating with those around you. So I, I would, I would start with awareness as a skill to building um, more positivity because if you're not aware of what's going on and what's going on within you and around you, then generally players aren't going to be even realizing how negative that they are. So I think awareness is an important skill to build as a foundation for that positivity. I think there are a couple of things in there I want to react to. You know, number one is um, the gratitude piece. In our episode with Jeff Greenwald, we had a really good conversation about that and. Um, you can talk about examples of how to use gratitude in a match. Perhaps, you know, gratitude for an opportunity that something has just come up, you know, and that could be maybe an opportunity in a, in a really difficult tiebreaker. And you're, all of a sudden you've worked your way to a set point or a match point. And having just gratitude for that opportunity in that moment can also release some of the tension that, that could go on there. 
you brought up the word compassion. So I think it's not only compassion for others, but what about compassion for yourself? Um, so much of our self-talk can be critical and negative. And there's a researcher at the University of Texas, Kristen Neff. She talks a lot about self-compassion. And one of the things that she mentions in her research is that people who are more self-compassionate actually take more responsibility for correcting their mistakes than those who are critical. And I think as we've said before on this podcast, there are no research studies that show the effectiveness of negative self-talk on performance. So can we be more compassionate even with ourselves? That is a positive emotion. Can we learn to be more positive, to be our own best friend, to realize it is not soft to be kind to yourself? So those were the kind of some of the things I wanted to react to that you said that I thought were really good. Um, I think as we start to use some of these positive emotions, what we would hope that develops is another positive emotion, which is optimism, that we feel good about the possibility of positive outcomes or positive play, which is such an important part of tennis because tennis can be very difficult, <laughs> right? It's the winning and losing of points. As you mentioned, it's going to be about 50-50. Um, and if we can't maintain some sort of optimistic attitude, some sort of self-belief that we can do it or we can play better, it's going to be very difficult to win matches in the long term and enjoy your tennis. And I would you know, say that that's another positive emotion that perhaps we need to be more explicit about is be explicit about enjoying the environment. Even if you're in a, in a uh, you know, high-pressure match, this is still a great place to be. You could be in other places. I think this is why Billie Jean King said that pressure is a privilege. It's a privilege to be in that moment. Um, it's a privilege that you're good enough to get into that moment, right? So um, I think we want to make sure that we are enjoying that experience. I find that if I actively bring like an enjoyable sense to tennis, it just makes it lighter in a way. I don't have these negative emotions. I'm able to move on from difficult things more easily if you know if I'm complimenting my opponent or smiling every now and then. Now we all have to find the right balance, right, Josh? Because you know, from an optimal functioning perspective, for some people, that could lead to them not being as intense and not caring as much, right? So we all have to figure out what that that balance is. For me, it's okay. It works for me. I I, I like bringing that sense of enjoyment, being respectful. Um, it really helps me to, and also be intense. Like as I, for me, that's just a default response. I I try my hardest. All the time, I'm always fighting, always very optimistic. So I think those are, are, are some good positive emotions to bring into this. Uh, another one that goes along with optimism is the idea of hope. And it's not that I like, I hope I win or I hope I play well. It's really more about very related to optimism that I have hope that I can play well. I have hope for possibilities of things. Um, the opposite of, of, of having hope is being hopeless. And if you go out onto the court hopeless, then of course we're not going to to play well. So I'd like to, you know, the listeners to think about hope in, from that respect, um, and really tie it to, to optimism. Um, and so I think, yeah, if we can increase this 
ratio across the board, not just uh, on the court, but maybe off the court, even having that um, you know, ratio go up could affect your tennis performance. So you brought up gratitude, Josh. Um, I'm sure that you've used different interventions with people to how to you know increase gratitude just in general. So you, could you like mention some different interventions that are are helpful to people with this? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think a gratitude journal is is a great place to start, um, where it doesn't have to be long. Maybe it's just a couple lines um, per day, you know, or whenever you feel like it or whenever you think of it, um, but having, you know, some sort of designated journal where you can, um, you know, make note of the things that you are grateful for. Maybe it's just a couple lines about um, feeling appreciative for your relationships and the people in your life or being able to play your sport or be able to, you know, do the things that you love um, or wh- whatever it is, be, be grateful to um, that, that your body allows you to be able to, you know, run around on court and compete in, in matches or whatever it may be, but having a, some sort of regular practice of journaling. Um, and we've, we've talked a bit about journaling in the past and we've talked about um, confidence journals and things of that nature. Um, we've also talked about using journaling to reflect on matches and training. Um, but also I think having some sort of gratitude journaling practice um, is, is definitely a great place to start. And also it's expressing that gratitude. I think that's, um, that, that next piece of it. But if you're, if it's a person in your life that you're grateful for or some, something specific that somebody's done for you, maybe it's a coach, maybe it's a parent or a friend, um, or a coworker, um, whoever it is, but, um, expressing that gratitude, um, also goes a long way towards, um, bringing positive emotions to you in, in that moment and, and in the long term. Yeah. The gratitude journal is one that I've used with players. And I remember a, a specific player. I had given him this, I may have said this in a previous episode, but I'd given this assignment maybe like three or four weeks earlier. He was supposed to do what you said. Basically, the end of each day, he would write down three things that he was grateful for. So sometime later, I get an email from his mother that says, okay, what have you done with my son? And I'm like, oh no, (laughs) (laughs) what happened is he's more polite around the house. He's more positive. He's not complaining yeah. as much anymore. I'm like, oh my goodness, this gratitude journal really started to affect him in a, in a, in a positive way. Then that, that started to also change how he handled himself on the tennis court. So I thought that was actually a really cool, um, probably the best you know email I could have gotten on, on assigning someone a, a gratitude journal. So I think that that is, is, is a really good um, option. You mentioned the other pieces like um, you know expressing gratitude. I think that's actually a great thing to do. Like make that part of your pre-match routine the day of that you're playing. Express gratitude to somebody because it is a really positive emotion. And so if you're a tournament player, you could express gratitude toward the you know tournament director or whoever's working the tournament desk. We need those people. Without them, there's no tournament. It could be the same with an official. Um, it could be just, um, you know, somebody in your family, Hey, thanks for, you know, setting aside some time to let me go play this tournament or Hey, mom and dad, thanks for driving me to this tournament. Really appreciate that, that, that type of thing. So I think that's a very positive thing. Um, you can find many more, uh, gratitude type of exercises to build that positivity ratio, you know, online or 
one of my favorite books for finding positive psychology interventions is The How of Happiness by Sonia Lubomirsky. It was written maybe like 2007 or so. But it's like a lot of evidence-based interventions based on positive psychology that can be very, very helpful. And um, one other one that I would say with gratitude is the idea of the gratitude letter. I don't know if you've ever done that, Josh, but you write essentially a letter to someone thanking them for it. And uh, I think Marty Seligman in one of his books talks about this. Um, The ultimate is to go and see that person in person and read it to them. And very often he says, you know, there's lots of tears and stuff that happen as a result of that. Um, But that is another way, another option for helping to cultivate more gratitude into your life. But I think if we're able to do this off the court, we will see impacts like that player I mentioned. He went on to have a very good Division I career and um, it really changed how he was on the court. He had been a very self-critical, a lot of negative self-talk out there, kind of acting out, and that went away. And it really matured into a, a uh, somebody who you could really count on uh, on the court as a doubles partner and as somebody on your in, in your lineup. Yeah, I, I I think that's an amazing story that that really shows how powerful gratitude can be. Yeah. Where if yeah. we're going through our, our daily lives um, without that that sort of you know awareness or that that sort of mindset of gratitude and um, you know realizing everything that we have in our lives and oftentimes the people that make that possible um, that you know we're not going to be experiencing those those positive emotions of of gratitude of appreciation. Um, so I, I think that that goes a long way in making that a practice, right? Not just doing that one time, but doing that, you know, on a, on a regular basis can really change our outlook. So I, I think that that is a very powerful story. Yeah. So let's move to now that we've discussed positive emotions as as one aspect of positive psychology that we can apply. Um, and I want to get your take on this first, Josh, because you're a coach as well as a sports psychology practitioner. And what do coaches do? They're really good at seeing what doesn't work, really good at making corrections. But is that really the best thing all the time, right? So talk to us a little bit about the strengths-based approach to, say, training in tennis. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I would say that it's very common for coaches and for players to fixate on their weaknesses or their perceived weaknesses. Um, There's a player I've worked with in the past who had a really strong forehand and a weaker backhand. And whenever uh, he would play, it was play or train. It was, it was as if he was constantly, constantly, constantly working on that backhand, even in matches at times, Um, just insisting on, you know, hitting it and, and working on it. Um, to the point where he forgot about, um, you know, that, that strength of his. Um, so I think, I think it's important for both for players and for coaches to, um, to constantly check in and think, okay, whatever these strengths are, why don't we try to make them try to continue improving them so that this strength can be, you know, world-class or can, can be really excellent rather than, okay, this is good. And something else in my game is, okay or subpar we're going to work on getting that aspect of my game that's subpar to an adequate level 
Um, I, I think you've made a great point in the past that a great way to be mediocre is to constantly be working on all of our weaknesses. Um, you, I'm sure you phrased it differently, but um, if we we're constantly working on everything that's wrong, we're never building our strengths to um, to a greater level. So um, I, I think as a coach, it it is very important to remind players of the importance of continuing to build those strengths where maybe a player has a great kick serve um, and rather than, okay, we need to build that, that spin serve or slice serve and flat serve and all of these other serves so that you have all these different options. Um, okay. Maybe there is the time to do that, but let's also to continue developing that kick serve into an even greater weapon. Um, so I think for, um, you know, for the coaches in our audience, um, that that's a definitely an important point that we want to be um, aware of our strengths and constantly trying to get them to that next level. I think what um, whether it's at a tennis club or at a university or wherever uh, you play, um, looking at the people around you and looking at some of the people that have some of those same strengths, but maybe at the at that next level. So if you're a four or five player. If there are some five O's at the club that um, also have a great kick serve, let's say, okay, what are they doing that makes that serve so effective? Um, can you learn from them? Can you pick up certain things so that you're constantly fascinated, not just on these areas of perceived weaknesses, but um, as something that may be maybe an aspect of the game that you understand better, um, constantly trying to get that to that next level as well, both for um, athletes as well as for coaches. Um, so I, I think um, utilizing the strength-based approach and uh, identifying with those strengths so that you see yourself as somebody, again, if we're using that kick serve example, somebody with an elite kick serve, and you're not spending all of your time focusing on those other serves or those other parts of your game, but you're still dedicating enough time and attention to, to that kick serve itself. Um, to making that you know elite and um, making that as much of a weapon as possible because it's probably the serve that you're going to utilize most. So there's no reason dedicating all this time towards those other serves that maybe you're utilizing less just so that you have them. Um, we want to dedicate some time certainly, but continuing to build on those strengths is is pivotal. Um, what what would you say, Brian? I know you um, working with athletes. You do you know some work on court as well as off court, but um, how do you see the, the strengths-based approach? I think, you know, like you, it's not just coaches, it is players. A lot of players look at through that sort of negative lens and, and that's okay. I mean, I think that's, that's normal and, and useful. Um, but if we think about it, our best performances don't go through our weaknesses. They go through our strengths. And when we look at the best players in the world, we recognize them for the world-class strengths that they have. They're not all well-rounded. Now, at the pro level, of course, they're all good enough in certain areas. Um, but they don't, you know, there's not one player who's the best in the world at serving, forehand, backhand, movement, mental game. But there are a few, you know, every player excels in some area like that. So, like, say, for a Roger Federer, I would say one of his world-class strengths is his ability to serve to like any spot in the service box. And that, you know, on the ad side, his serve out wide is so good. Such a hard serve to hit, hard serve to return. 
So I think that's you know one aspect of his his game that is world class, which helps him to be one of the best servers in the world. You know, and hold serve. Um, Novak Djokovic with his return, Rafael Nadal with his forehand. These guys are really good at other aspects, but they have these these strengths that are like super strengths. That that's where we are going to differentiate ourselves from others is by developing our own super strength. And I think the first thing, you know, one of the things that we should do, like from an intervention perspective is, can we do a strengths inventory? Like what are your strengths? And as you're doing this, you don't want to just consider the tennis skills, although that's important, (laughs) you know, so you might think, all right, what are the top two or three things that I do well from a tennis perspective? And we want to be specific about those. We don't want to just say forehand. You might want to say, well, I have a really heavy inside-out forehand. That's one of my favorite shots to hit and is really effective. And perhaps, you know, my kick serve, as you were saying, Josh, that could be, right? So those might be the two things. So that that would be the beginning of our inventory. But then we're going to look at other aspects of being a tennis competitor. How's your footwork and movement and speed, agility? Are those strengths? Now, you don't have to say yes, right? You might say, nope not that fast or whatever, or maybe I'm good with my eyes and I'm able to um, get to balls because I, I see so well. I anticipate well. That could be a strength of yours. There will probably be aspects of your mental and emotional game that are strengths. Nobody, again, is 100% weak when it comes to mental toughness. So perhaps it's determination or simply being competitive, great work ethic, those types of things. You might be really strong, have great stamina. That could be something. Maybe the way you think on the court, like you're very consistent. You are great at playing defense or perhaps being aggressive and having an aggressive mindset is a strength of yours. And then the last thing I usually tap into to do this inventory is tell me about yourself uh, character-wise. You know, being fair, respectful, um, having integrity having patience with others, patience with yourself. What are some aspects of your character that are strengths that we can also use? And so I think that when you start to fill out your strengths inventory and see how you use those strengths to be an effective competitor, it can actually be motivating to want to work on them more. Because like in our example, like your example, the kick serve, you might say, well, you know, my kick serve, it's really effective. I get a lot of short balls that you know, help me, you know, dictate the point right away or end the point right away. Wow, I should really make that even better because it is so effective. So I would say you know, a good idea for everybody is to go through that strengths inventory, understand what you're really good at, and then start to, you know, we're not, we're, Josh and I are not talking about ignoring our weaknesses. But I think the way to say this is focus on your strengths and manage your weaknesses, right? We want to develop, we want to maximize those strengths, manage the weakness so that it's good enough. And I think you can see this at the, even at the elite level. Like, think about Roger Federer and his backhand 10 to 12 years ago. Now, he hasn't necessarily worked on the backhand like in major training blocks and had a jump, right, from 2008 to 2009. But it's slowly gotten better and better and better, right? And what happened in 2017 is, you know, when he played Nadal at the Australian Open um, in that final, 
Nadal really wasn't able to break it down like he had in the past. You know, and something else Federer did, I think he went to a little bit slighter, bigger head, which also helped that backhand and, and handling Nadal's forehand in there. So over time, it's gotten incrementally better, right? So he hasn't ignored his backhand. And I think you could say the same with Nadal. Nadal's backhand is better than it was, say, in 2005, 2006. But if you're going to watch these guys practice, where are they going to really focus on the majority of the time, their strengths? You're going to see Nadal hitting tons of forehands. And same with Federer. He's going to hit that very aggressive forehand. He loves hitting that inside out. So you want to think about how you train is do not ignore their strengths. Just because you're good at something does not mean you're truly great at it. It could be better. And sometimes the difference between being good and great at something is comfort. It's very comfortable to be good, right? You can be, yeah, I've got a good forehand, whatever. Um, But if you want to be great at it, you're going to have to make yourself uncomfortable to take it to that next level. And are you willing to do that with your strength? Are you willing to get uncomfortable with that so that it comes, as you mentioned, like world-class or that differentiating thing? Um, You know, and I think this is where we can bring some maybe even growth mindset into this whole thing. We can always get better, not only in our weaknesses, but the strengths can get better as well. That's that's a great point, Um, tying. I think we definitely want to tie growth mindset in. I think also, there's the goal setting piece um, where we're not just we don't just want to be setting goals about those areas in our game that we're weak in. And it's like year after year, or season after season, constantly the, the goal is to improve that backhand or to improve that second serve or whatever it is. But um, OK, let's let's put together a plan for how can we take our strength to that, to that next level? How can we go from good to great at that kick serve or at our forehand or whatever that shot is? Um, and, you know, we've talked about goal setting in the past, but putting, you know, putting together those, not just having the outcome goal of, okay, I want my forehand, which is a strength to, um, to be a super strength or to, you know, to be one of the best forehands in the conference, but okay, what does that look like um, in, in terms of breaking that down in terms of having some process goals um, in terms of, in, in terms of having process and performance goals for that forehand in terms of, okay, really breaking down what we'll need to do in order to have that elite forehand. So um, not just, you know, to, to really be as specific as possible with the, with our goal setting process and to um, again, to dedicate the necessary amount of time in order to improve that shot and to take it to the next level, because it, it probably is a shot that you understand a little bit better, maybe in terms of the mechanics of it, or in terms of the intricacies of certain types of situations when you'd use it. So you have an advantage at learning the shot better and improving the shot based on that understanding. So um, making sure that you're dedicating the time and attention on the practice court um, to take that strength to that next level, I think is definitely an important point. Yeah. And, you know, if we think of a very basic definition of a strength, it's it's something you're good at and you enjoy doing. So if that's true, then you'll want to train it even more. Right. So I think another aspect where positive psychology has affected tennis is in how we evaluate and debrief matches. So, you know, if we were to look at, say, a training journal from 20 years ago, the first question might be, okay, based on a match or a practice, what do you need to improve? What do you need to work on? 
And now you can pull up pretty much any training journal, like you know the USTA Player Development. They have a training journal. And what's the first question? What went well today in practice? And it's um, I think it's recognizing that coaches and players tend to have that negative lens and is trying to to shift that a little bit so that we can again change our positivity ratio. Um, how do you work with that, Josh? at the hall of fame, like when you're talking to players, how do you work in the, you know, what's going well or what did you do well today? You know, is that a conversation? Do you have training journals? What, how are you doing that at the, at the club? Yeah, it's, it's generally, generally starts with that point during the conversation. Um, so let's say we're doing match play, um, not just starting with, and sometimes you're going to, you're going to lose. Sometimes you're going to lose six Oh in a set if we're, if we're playing sets. Uh, but not just saying, okay, you know, you lost love six here. Okay, what what went wrong? But okay, let's let's start with the positive. Can you tell me what went well? And generally, that's someone's not going to be able to just jump to something that they did well, especially if they're frustrated or annoyed at at that result. They might say, oh, I didn't do anything well. I got crushed. But no, okay, you must have done something well, right? Something must have been working, or you you showed up. You fought, what, what, you know, you fought hard. And um, what, what is something that, you know, that, that went well, that was positive. So I think starting, starting there is a very important place to start. And sometimes being, you know, pushing a little bit further um, from that point um, right in the beginning is, is important because there often will be some resistance. And I think, you know, sometimes as we've talked about in the past, um, it takes a little bit of time. Somebody is not ready to have that conversation right away five minutes after that set um so you know waiting a little bit maybe it's the next day maybe it's the following week and then you bring up that match and you say okay you now you know let's let's talk a little bit about that set that you played against johnny um so i i think it's a very important place to start both when i'm on court with athletes um and also you know with my sports psychology business that any you know any sort of result anytime that you're out on court there are positives to look at and to reflect on and to acknowledge. Um, so not let's not just jump right to the negatives and what needs to be improved on and uh, what you need to get better at, because then that's constantly where that focus is going to be. But okay, let's start at a positive point. Let's start with um, you know a few things that are going well that you've done well, a couple of accomplishments maybe, um, and then we can get to some of those other areas that you want to improve upon that maybe aren't going as well. But um, I think starting at that point is is really important. I think you're right too that when you first start this with players, they're they're not very good at it. Actually, it it takes a lot of prodding to get them to come up with some some positive aspects of their performance. And but the benefits are there by getting them to look at what they're doing positively. Because as we talked about in our one of our previous episodes with Marius Bernard. Um, by looking at more of those pauses, what they did, they can start to build some self-belief. Again, this is where the negativity aspect um, does not help us as tennis players because if we're constantly looking at what's going wrong, how are you possibly building confidence and self-belief in your game? It's very much, as we've said today, a deficit model, an illness model, always thinking that something is wrong, uh, uh, always you know, thinking that, you know, you're not good enough to, to do what you want to do. 
And I think that that's one of the reasons that we want to reflect more on what went well in that match. And I think one of the things that we talked about with Marius was the idea of after your practice or after your match, going back and visualizing some of the positive aspects, putting together your own personal positive video highlight in your brain, rerun through some of the points. As you said, Josh, maybe the only thing you did well today is you, you, you competed, you tried hard. Well, then put those in there. And the whole idea with that is, can you at a later date, when you think of this match or this practice, can your first recall be more about the positive events, the positive aspects of it, than the negative ones? And the long-term goal here is that we are learning to build self-belief, self-efficacy, we're learning to build confidence in different situations. And you know, we're not trying, again, to become Pollyannas and only see the positive stuff and ignore the other pieces. We are going to be realistic here. But on the flip side, being 100% negative is not realistic either because there are good things, right? So we've got to recognize both of those. And I think um, you know, sort of the next piece of, of positive psychology I want to touch on that is related to this is something called appreciative inquiry. So this is really more on the positive organizational psych side of things. But appreciative inquiry is about looking at past experiences and trying to understand what works, what worked here. Um, so it's, again, not just a deficit thing, but like you could look at, all right, yeah, in this match, these are the things that worked. It's not just that maybe I did them well, but maybe my preparation was really good today. So, you know, when I did that meditation half an hour before the match for five minutes, that really got me locked in. So that's something that worked. So we, when we go back and we look at our performance and understand what, what is working in different aspects of things, now we can build upon that. We can improve those processes because again, no one is a hundred percent failing. Things are working Maybe we just need to figure out how to replicate them more often. So, you know, Josh, you and I could probably dive into a player's best ever performance. That's a great thing to study. Um, as we've, I think we've probably dropped this line in, in the podcast before, success leaves clues. Let's study your best performances. Let's just chalk it up to random, uh, just, you know, things just fell into place. It's more than that. Something, some things happened. Some something created that. Let's study your best performances, and then let what can we extract from that that we can replicate more and more often. And I think that's you know where appreciative inquiry is about taking those best performances and now like okay, how do I expand it? How do I make it better in the future? What are some steps that I can then take to make it more of a reality more often? And so. When we look at past performances, and I would, I would encourage everybody to go back, think of one of their best performances, study it, understand it. What did you eat? How did you sleep? What did you do in preparation? How is your focus and confidence, right? Break it down into a number of different factors and, and see what that was. Um, I think it's a lot of valuable information when we do that. Yeah, yeah you're bringing up, I think you're bringing up a few uh, really, really important points there that. Um, learning from those experiences. And we talk a lot about, you know, learning from our mistakes or learning from losses. 
um, but more so let's learn from what went right. Um, there, how are we going to be able to replicate that if we're not really going through that process of learning from um, our positive experiences or some of our best lifetime experiences? So I, I would agree that that's a great process to go through um, to make that best performance uh, happen more more frequently. Um, so to really understand, um, okay, maybe, maybe it was a great match that you played, or it was an interview that you had, or whatever it was. And, okay, well, you felt great. You performed great. Okay, why? Was it the preparation that led up to it? Did Was this a particular moment where you prepared more, uh, where you went through, you know, more of a complete process in terms of your preparation? Um, okay, was it, was it the fact that you um, scheduled your eating before the match you know, two hours before where in the, in the past, it's sort of haphazard and you're sort of winging it. Um, what was it about this day and really trying to hone in on that um, in, in terms of replicating that in terms of making that part of your routine and part of your regular process. Um, so I, 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 I love that. And I think that's, that's an awesome point that um, our, our listeners can definitely benefit from. Yeah. And there's a, Appreciate Inquiry talks about this 4D model process that I'll just put out there as a way of creating, you know, more of these performances. So the first piece is the discovery piece, which is what we were just talking about. So that's the first D, and it's about studying what what works, what has worked, studying success. The next piece is uh, dreaming, which is really more imagining the possibilities now. Now that you understand what works, what are some of the possibilities of performance in the future? which is actually, I think, a really cool thing to tie into goal setting, Josh, like what you were talking about earlier, right? Understanding those possibilities could really help us get to process goals and and so forth. They might be more outcome-oriented. Then it's about designing, right? And that is the goal setting piece, designing a plan to get there. That's the third D. And then the fourth D is what's called destiny, but it's really about putting it into action. What are you going to do now that you've gone through this process so that you can start realizing these best performances more and more often. So I think it's a really cool process. Very often you'll see companies or sports organizations change the four D's a little bit to more contextually specific language um, than, than, than these like, you know, dream. Some people might get, it it feels kind of touchy feely. Right. Um, So it might be something else might be imagine that type of thing. Um, but if you take these these four steps into uh, into account, you can really take some of your best performances and make them happen more often, and take them to another level by understanding it at you know much deeper level. Yeah, no, I I I think that that's definitely beneficial in terms of okay, let's take that positive performance that we had. Let's take that that best performance that we've had. And in terms of replicating it, can we, can we envision ourselves? Can we visualize ourselves doing that on a regular basis, right? What are some of those possibilities of, um, of what we could be, what we could achieve, right? Um, and, and trying to envision that and then going through those, those four steps, going through those four Ds, I think is a, is a great, um, is, is a great framework to, to doing that to um, really um, learning from our past experiences and then designing that designing that framework um, for you know envisioning what we could become designing that that framework for actually getting there and then going through that process so I 
I think that's a, a good pathway for um, for for actually learning from those positive experiences and then act, taking action and um, replicating them. Yeah. So I think that's probably a good place to to stop today with positive psychology. You know, leaving us with studying your best, your strengths. You know, we we, we covered a lot of good territory. Of course, there are other interventions with respect to positive psychology. We had an episode on mindfulness, so that is certainly um, something that can help with positive psychology. Um, we're probably going to have some future episodes on different topics in this area. Um, but we hope that you enjoyed today's show. We want to thank you for listening. For more on the show, please check out the show notes. If you have any feedback or questions, please email us at tennisiqpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use the Twitter hashtag TennisIQ. Also, please subscribe to the show on your podcast platform of choice, which includes YouTube, so you can be notified of new episodes. We are also putting up notifications on Instagram. Thanks again, and we will talk to you soon in our next episode.